You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. First Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah confronted the people of God on a mountain called Carmel. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. And if Baal is God, then follow Him. Is the God of the Bible the true God, or not? Is He real, or is He not? Is He good, or is He not? Is He faithful, or is He not? Is He mighty, or is He not? Is He for you, or is He not? Is He worthy of your obedience and admiration and love, or not? And if not, then what in the world are you doing here? This is the question of our day. It is the question that is raging in your heart every day as you struggle with temptation. Is he God or is he not? Is he worthy of your trust or is he not? In every temptation, that's the question. Every time you worry, that's the question. This morning, we have a complex passage. But I believe that it is meant to proclaim a very simple message. I'm going to give you a summary of what I believe Hosea is saying to us. And then we're going to work to dig into this passage um, to see it for yourself. And I, I can't remember... The last time um, I struggled to understand a passage as much as I've struggled to understand this one. But I believe that his message is simple, incredibly beautiful, and I hope very helpful. It's been good for me. Three things that I think Hosea chapter 12 is proclaiming first is humble yourself. Hear God's rebuke. And then finally, hope. In him. Humble yourself, hear his rebuke, hope in him. Uh, Open your Bible with me, if you will, to Hosea chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in the last verse of Hosea 11, because I think it goes with this passage, and then read down to verse 14. Ephraim surrounds me with lies. And the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah. 
and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets. I gave numerous visions and through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have... You have heard me over and over plead for the help of your spirit as I seek to teach this text. Lord, I am reminded that apart from you, I can do absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter what preparation has been made. It doesn't matter anything that I do unless the spirit of the Lord communicates the truth of this passage, nothing of benefit will happen. But, I am reminded that if your spirit would move, if your spirit would speak, if your spirit would help me to communicate and then to help us to listen, what happens in these moments can make Literally eternal difference. Father, I pray that you would root out sin. And I pray, Lord, that you would expose unbelieving hearts. Even people who are here who think they're believers but aren't. Lord, I pray that you would expose hearts. And I pray today that you would give us grace to put our confidence in Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. This is an amazing text with a beautifully complex web of truth. But I, I want to encourage you, it, it does not yield its treasures easily. You, you are going to have to dig this morning. I, I noticed in this text, I'm going to, I, I thought about trying to cover these in exact order. We're, we're gonna, I'm going to show first the breakdown, I think, of this text. And then we're going we're gonna to cover it, not in five sections, 
uh, but in three. But here's, as you're seeking to understand this text, here's what I think we have. From chapter 11, verse 12, down to chapter 12, verse 4, we have an exposure of Israel's sin. In chapter 12, verses 5 through 6, we see God's plea to his people. In chapter 12, verse 7 and 8, Israel responds not with humility and with repentance, but with self-righteousness. And then God comes back in verses 9 through 13 with a solution. And yet it seems they still don't heed his warning. And so he gives a final warning in verse 14. First, I want you to notice Israel's sin. Look at chapter 11, verse 12. Ephraim surrounds me with lies. And the house of Israel with deceit. Judah also is unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. So here, I'm going to ask a few questions during, during our time together. And I encourage you just to, to blurt them out. What is God's beef with Israel, whom he first calls Ephraim, in verse 12 of chapter 11? Deceit. Lies. And according to the last line of verse 12, who are they lying about? They're lying about the Lord. The picture that Hosea is painting is that Israel is wrapping, he's clothing, as it were, the Lord with lies. He's he's putting garments of falsehood on the Lord. But, But it's not as if he's accusing him of these things on social media. Or writing books about him full of falsehood. Or gossiping about him on the street. No, their lies about him are much more subtle and even more disgraceful. It's not merely that they're saying wrong things about God. As much as they're living in ways where their lives are proclaiming wrong things about God. This is happening in three key ways. And we see the first in verse 1 of chapter 12. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Let me remind you that these were difficult times in Israel. There's political unrest. There's economic unrest. They're going through kings one after another. Lots of the kings are very wicked. And what we saw way back in chapter 2 is how concerned they are about being able to feed their, their families and to clothe them. And so when life becomes uncertain, according to verse 1, where does Israel run? Israel runs to Assyria. And then Israel begins to take oil, olive oil, down to Egypt. What do you think he's saying? What's that? Yeah, they're they're making, they're they're trying to make the, they're trying to to make a, um, almost like they're trying to bribe Egypt. They're trying to make alliances. And, And they're really playing both sides of it. On one hand, they're making a covenant with Assyria. And then on the other hand, they're taking precious goods down to Egypt to try to win Egypt's favor. So notice what's happening. We have this political unrest. I'm not sure what's going to happen. So I'm going to make these political alliances with these very wicked nation. And here's the real question. When life becomes uncertain, in whom did Israel hope? That's right. 
They're hoping in themselves that they're able to create these political alliances, but they're hoping in Assyria. They're hoping in Egypt. Egypt, the ones who did enslave them, and Assyria, the ones who are very quickly going to enslave them. They're making military and economic alliances, paying tributes. Here's the question, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with political alliances? They're depending on them instead of on God. But notice what Hosea is saying. In making alliances with these wicked godless nations, what they're actually doing with their lives are telling lies about God. That's what he says in verse 12. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah also is unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. So here's my question. What lie are they telling about God as they go and make these alliances with these wicked nations? That He's not enough. He won't protect them. I'm hedging my bets. It's a lie. But that's not all. Look at verse 2. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel and there he spoke with us. Hosea is a very interesting storyteller and he's a master theologian. Notice how he confronts Israel in their present sin by referring back to their history and the sin of their forefathers and to Jacob in particular. Notice what he's saying. You today are acting like your deceitful forefather, Jacob. Look at verse 3. In the womb, he, Jacob, took his brother by the heel. Noah, do you remember what he's talking about? Jacob taking his brother by the heel. Does that sound familiar? In the womb, who's Jacob's brother? Esau. And even in the womb, when Esau was born, do you remember that Jacob was holding his heel? Esau was the firstborn. But notice what Jacob is trying to do. Trying to take his place. And here's the question. Is that the only time that Jacob deceived Esau and tried to steal what was rightfully his? Do you remember anything about some lentil stew? What was he trying to steal from Esau? His birthright. Was that the only time he deceived it? <laughs> do you remember when he got all dressed up and he put goat hair on him? Do you remember that? Do you remember when he cooked a big meal, Max? Do you remember when he cooked a big meal for his, for his father Isaac? And he, and he tricked him? What was he trying to get? His brother's blessing. So notice there's this pattern in Jacob's life where Jacob wants to put himself before his brother. He wants to see himself as more important than his brother. And so he's constantly deceiving and trying to take his brother's place. You see what Hosea is trying to say? Your your father Jacob was constantly trying to get what was not rightfully his. He was constantly cheating. Verse 3 says he even tried to wrestle with God. But here's Hosea's point. You're doing the same wicked thing. Look at what he says in verse 7. 
A merchant. He calls him a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. What do you think it means by false balances? A merchant with false balances. That's exactly so. So you go and you set up. So so here people would come and they would buy things right in the marketplace, and they would say, "Okay, I'm going to buy you know two two pounds or whatever it was of of wheat." And so I'm going to make the scales where I'm actually going to, I'm going to sell them a pound of wheat, but I'm not going to give them a pound of wheat. I'm going to charge the same amount of money as I would a pound of wheat, but I'm going to give them less than a pound of wheat. These, these false scales. And, and I just want you to notice what's going on here. This is, this is profound. Look back. Keep your place in Hosea. And look back to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is His delight. Notice how strong a language He uses. We tend to think of abomination and we think of these these horrific sexual sins. But notice he says, an unjust weight, a false balance, is an abomination to the Lord. Look over to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 11. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. Isn't that amazing? All the way down, like here are, the, here are these people, they're just selling wheat. And God says, I know every transaction. Every transaction is my concern. Now you think about that, what that would be like in our modern time. And I'm just constantly reminded of how, you know, if we could go back in time to when I was a boy, you know, cereal boxes were bigger. Ice cream was bigger. And so what's happening is they're selling us less and less and less for more and more and more. But, but you, 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 think about, you think about this. You think about the people who, for example, you, you, you sell a car. And right before you sell it, you, you put some sort of, of uh, all kinds of people. You put sawdust in the, in the axles and you, and you turn the odometer back. And you, and you make sure that you clean up all the oil leaks so that when you sell it, it looks like you're selling this, this car that's in great shape, but actually you're selling a piece of junk. Or you, or you have a house and you go through that little disclaimer on your house and you don't, you don't share everything that's wrong with your house. It's a, it's, a, it's a false balance. It's an unjust weight. Our business transactions matter to God. The tiniest details of our lives matter to God. And they matter for two reasons. One, when we cheat people, we hurt people. Right? That's one reason why. Look at the word he uses in Hosea chapter 12, verse 7. He says, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. You're cheating your own brother. 
You're just grabbing at the heel. You're taking what's rightfully his. But look, there's something else. Here's the question. Why do people cheat? In some ways, people cheat. And in their minds, is what we'll see in just a second, they're rationalizing like, I'm just trying to put food on my table. I'm trying to provide for my family. I'm trying to give my children nice things. But in reality, they're lying about God. It looks like you're lying to your neighbor, but what you're lying is about God. I have to do whatever it takes to take care of me because God can't be trusted to do that. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. There's a third way they lie. Look at verse 11. Is there iniquity in, Gil- in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now, this is a hard verse to translate. Uh, and it's hard to translate because Hosea, you can ask me about this later. It's very interesting what he does in this verse. But he brings all this imagery together in one time. I won't get to go into all of it, but here's, here's one thing that he does. In this, in this word iniquity, specifically the iniquity, the sin that he is addressing is specifically the sin of idolatry. The New King James is, is the best translation for the first part of this verse that, that I found. And here's the way he, they, they say it. Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. So let me read the whole verse that way and see if it doesn't make more sense. Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Hosea's readers would immediately get this image. How many of you have ever cleared a piece of land that's never been cleared before to put a garden in? You you, you better have a wheelbarrow full. I mean a a wheelbarrow handy because what what are you going to fill it with? Rocks. You, you clear a piece of land you, and you, you uncover all kinds of rocks. And here's what Hosea is saying. Here's, this is an agrarian community. They're constantly clearing land. And they're piling up rocks next to the field that they're clearing. And he's like, you guys worship so many idols that they're like, all of these rocks, they're like, you have that many altars. You have altars everywhere. You're worshiping all these idols, but they're absolutely worthless. Again, let's be reminded. We look at idolatry and we say, what a bunch of wicked people. But let's be reminded, why are they worshiping idols? Do you remember this from Hosea chapter 2, verse 5? They're worshiping idols because they want to put food on the table. They're worshiping idols because they want to have clothes on their children's back. And so the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 12, For their mother has played the harlot. She who can see them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Why is it so wrong to worship other gods? And here's here's the answer. Because when you do, you're telling lies about the true God. What lie about God does idol worship tell? What's that? 
The real God doesn't exist. And if he does exist, he obviously doesn't care about me or he's not powerful enough to take care of me. And so I'm going to worship this other idol and I'm going to tell those lies about God. Let's make sure we know what we're all talking about. What, what three sins has Hosea confronted so far? Idolatry, worshiping other gods, hoping they'll provide for you. Violence and, and, and cheating people because you're scared that God's not going to take care of you. And then making these political alliances with these wicked nations because you're cons- scared that God is not going to take care of you. Do, do, do you see what all of these have in common? The question, and it is the question that rages in your heart every time you are tempted to sin, is God going to be faithful to me or not? Is he worthy of my trust or not? We need to hear this, don't we? Have you ever known a Christian who put their hope in political alliances with wicked people? So much so that they're willing to turn a blind eye to all kinds of wickedness because of what they hope that political alliance will do for them in the end. Does that ever happen? I'm not saying that American Christians aren't put in situations where we have to vote for this guy because this guy's worse. But it's very different than putting your hope in wicked people. So we protect them. And we don't want to hear anything negative about them. Why? Because they're our hope. In them is our hope. Listen, when we transfer alliance, when we transfer allegiance, we transfer hope and we broadcast lies about God. I'm going to hedge my bets because I'm not sure. God might not come through. I'm going to hedge my bets because God's way might not work. But but let's think about the other lie. Are Christians ever tempted to steal or cheat or overcharge customers or sell people things they don't need or not disclose everything about what they're selling, the car, the house, or whatever it may be? You can write this down. Here's, here's one. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. Are, are Christians ever tempted? Here, here's what that text says. You can go back and look at it. It says, when you go to work, work really hard because what you're doing is loving your boss. Work really hard when you go to work because you want your boss, especially if he's a believer, to prosper. Are Christians ever tempted to go to work and not do their absolute best? When we live like that, we're telling lies about God. He won't take care of me. I have to take care of me. And listen, Hosea's already anticipating what you're you're probably thinking. Like, you're thinking, well, everybody does that. That's not really wrong. Everybody, everybody doesn't tell everything that happens with their used car. Everybody texts at work. Everybody takes a little bit longer on their break. Everybody is, it's like, listen, don't work so hard, you're making the rest of us look bad. Everybody's tempted with that. Notice that Hosea's already 
thought you'd be saying that. Because he says it in verse 7. He says, he says even though God confronts Ephraim, God is confronting You're a merchant in whose hands are a false bound. You love to oppress. And look at what Ephraim says. Ephraim, confronted by the Lord, says, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. Well, God must be a liar then. This is a little bit of a side note, but for the sake of time, I'll just, I'll just make it here. Look at, look at verse 8. I have found wealth for myself. That is so normal and so wrong. Matthew Henry puts it boldly. It is folly to think that we, what we have is for ourselves. And we certainly tell lies when we worship other gods. Now, is that really an issue? In the, okay, Tommy, I know, I know sometimes we make political alliances and we turn a blind eye because we really hope that we get the right people on the Supreme Court. I, I know that. And I know that sometimes I'm tempted to kind of not tell the whole truth a little bit, trying to take care of myself. But, but really, is idol worship really a problem in this room? You, you can find out if it's a problem by just asking yourself the very simple question, where is my hope? Where is my hope? And, and here's how you find out the answer to that question. What makes me worry? You answer that question, you'll find out where your hope is. What is it, when it's running low, that makes me anxious? What is it that when I have it, I feel safe? Here's a very important question. What tends to make you angry? Years ago, I was on the telephone with a good friend of mine, Eric Hall. And we were talking to each other. We talked regularly. We were confessing sin to each other, encouraging each other. And, and, and Eric was telling me about something that he had been listening to. I forget where he got it from, but I hope I never forget what he said. He said, Tommy, if you look behind your anger, you'll find an idol. What is it that makes you angry? When, when people don't give you the respect that you think you need, there's your idol. When people don't do what you ask them to do, when they don't listen to you, when they don't give you what you... you do you see? Look behind your anger and you'll find an idol. I, I'll, I'll give one more. Look behind your worry. This is the one that's really convicting to me. Look behind your worry and you'll find an idol. Where's your hope? Is it in money? Is it in people? Is it in politicians? Think about this for myself. I, don't, I, I just say this so you, can, so you can think about what this looks like in your life. But for me, what, what, is, it that, what is it that when I say, life is good when these things happen? Life is good for Tommy Hullett when he has enough money in the bank to do what he wants to do. Life is really good for Tommy Hullett whenever in his work there's a sense of success, that there's fruit. And life is good with Tommy Hullett when the people that he cares about are happy with him. What would Hosea call those things? Idols. Idols. 
idols. And when I put my hope in them, I am telling lies about God. Is God enough or not? Is He faithful or not? Is He committed to me or not? Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. That's Israel's sin. Does that sound familiar? Next, notice God's plea. God's people are lying about him, believing lies about him, and notice God's response. Look at verse 4. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. We won't go into that, but incredibly gracious of God to do. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. This verse deserves way more time than I'm going to be able to give it, but notice how he refers to himself. In verse 5, he reminds them and us that he is the Lord. The I am. The one who was and the one who is and the one who always will be. The unchanging one. The one who is. The eternal one. He calls himself the God of hosts. The God of armies. The God of all power. But what he calls himself in verse 6, to me, is the most precious of all. He's been confronting Israel for 12 chapters now, piling accusation after much-deserved accusation. They're disloyal, they're liars, they're cheaters, they're adulterers, they're idol worshipers. And yet, look what he calls himself in verse 6. Return to your God. Can you imagine God looking at those people and saying, I am your God. That's what he means in chapter 11 verse 12 by calling himself the Holy One who is faithful. His people are all messed up. But he's still committed. His people are all messed up and yet they are still his people and the God of all grace is calling them back this is a call to repentance look at verse 6 return to your God observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually observe kindness do you remember that word chapter 4 verse 1 look look back at it real fast Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness. They're not faithful to me. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Chapter 6, verse 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that they're acting like their father Jacob in his dishonesty and in his pride, and he's calling them instead to be like him. 
in his faithfulness, in his loyalty, in his undying commitment. He's calling them to be holy as he is holy. And notice that that works itself out in justice. We saw this so beautifully in Romans 12. You want to serve God? Then love your neighbor. Look what he says. You simply, he says, observe kindness and justice. You simply cannot be committed to God without being committed to the practical welfare of his people. Loving God, this is why we had to start the service the way we started it. You can't love God and not love his people. The two go together. If you're on your way to worship and there remember your brother has something against you, what does God tell you to do? Go and worship all the more fervently and maybe he'll overlook what you did to your brother. No, what does he say? You go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and worship me. He says, husbands, don't think you can mistreat your wife and then have your prayers heard. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15, he says, I hate your worship. Not because you're singing the wrong songs. Or you're using the wrong instruments. Or it's the wrong style. Or you're not dressed right. No, he says, I hate your worship because your hands are covered in blood. You're not loving your neighbor. Look back again. Keep your place in Hosea. And look back to Isaiah 58. I really commend this chapter to you. They're worshiping, they're fasting, and God is turning a blind eye. And they're like, why? We're fasting, why aren't you hearing our prayers? And listen to his answer in verse 6. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the press go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to clothe him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Here's reality. Too many of us conservative Christians are so concerned that somebody might call us a liberal or somebody might call us a social justice warrior or peddlers of the social gospel that we've forgotten what the Bible makes crystal clear that we are called to love our neighbor. And to love our neighbor means that when we see him in need, to practically help him. Learn to do good, Isaiah says. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Just go spend time with the parable of the Good Samaritan. But but look what he's really saying. What he's really saying is don't put your hope in money. Don't put your hope in idols. Don't put your hope in political alliances. Put your hope in God. Return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. Do you know how that verse wait is translated in chapter 2, verse 15? As hope. Hope. In your God continually. That's what he's talking about. Is he God or not? Is he going to be faithful or not? Is he for you or is he not? And if so, then let's fix our hope completely on him. 
This is the key to destroying anger in your life. This is the key to destroying worry in your life. This is the key to destroying greed in your life. This is the key to destroying these, these political alliances where we, where, we, where we compromise in order to get something in the end. Set your hope completely on God, the one who is faithful. Now, I'm going to speed up, but just finally, I just want you to see God's solution. Look at chapter 9, I mean chapter 12, verse 9. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilgal? Surely they are worthless. In in Gilead, surely they are worthless. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. It is a beautiful thing that God does in verse 9. Look at verse 9. I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. Notice what he's saying. I have been your God since I rescued you out of Egypt, and I am going to bring you back into those tents that you used to live in when I, fed, when I led you through the wilderness. Do you remember the wilderness? Where you looked to me for everything? Where I provided water? Where I provided manna? Where I provided quail? Where I provided your healing? Where your clothes and your shoes didn't wear out? I was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God says, I'm going to bring you back there. Isn't that precious? I'm going to take you back to the place we were at first. I just want to remind you, his tactics haven't changed. His heart hasn't changed. You remember what he told the church in Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus? I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, If you want to be fruitful then remember that you've been forgiven. Do you see what he's doing? He's bringing his people back to the basics. Back to the gospel. That I'm a sinner. That I deserve his wrath. That God himself came into human flesh and he bled for me. And he rose again from the dead and he has secured for me eternity. That's the well that never runs dry. See, it's, it's that simple gospel that he's always bringing us back to. Never, we ought to never live our lives as if I'm going to preach the gospel to unbelievers and in Christians we're just going to seek to follow Christ. No, no, you can't. This is the well from which all the following, this is the well where love comes from. You want to learn to love your neighbor? Then be loved by God Almighty, the one who bleeds for you. You, you want to, this is, this is where we learn to be loved. This is where we learn to plant our hope Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for those, to, for good to those who love God, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, become conformed to his, the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you see what he's saying? If I am willing to bleed with you, what in the world are you worried about? If I didn't, if I didn't withhold my son, you're going to worry about money as if I'm not going to provide it? You're going to worry about what happens to America as if I'm not bigger than America? You're, you're, wor- you're, you're worried about... Oh, I can give you a whole list of what I'm tempted to worry about. If he did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword... But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So he says, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, he's the faithful one. He's the holy one. I'm just going to point something out and I'm not going to go there. I feel like it's getting long. Just notice in verses 10 through 13. Notice he uses the word prophet four times. When God wants to call his people back, he uses a prophet. When he rescued his people from Egypt, he used a prophet. When he wanted to keep them secure in the land, he used a prophet. And right now, 2,800 years later, Look at you. You are sitting in chairs listening to the prophet. Why? Because it's still how he works. It's still how he calls his people back. He, he has given us the pro- He's given his word to the prophets. What is the hope for Israel? Hosea says, it's me. The prophet through whom he is speaking. The, the, just meditate on this. Here's what it means. Then if you want to get to God, then here's what you need to do. You need to open up the book of the prophets. It's how the Holy Spirit speaks. What's the hope for this country? The hope for this country is not the right politician. The hope for this country is not economic security. The hope for this country is what God has spoken through the prophets. Which is why the people of God need to have the word of the prophets on their lips. It's why, it's why we need to be eager looking for opportunities to share God's truth with our neighbor. Because this is our hope. This is, the, this is, how, this is how he turns very wicked people around. Just like Israel repeated Jacob's sin... We're repeating theirs, and we still need the Spirit of God to speak through us through the prophet of God. And just notice what he's saying. I hope you see what he's saying. He's saying, humble yourself. 
go back to the place. Don't, don't harden your heart the way Israel did in verse 7 and 8. Go back to where you were at the beginning, where you depended on him for everything. Hear God's rebuke. Don't fight against it. Hear his rebuke and put your hope in him. Fix your hope completely in him. Let me just say this to wrap up. Here's what Israel had. They look back in their past and they see God was faithful when he rescued them out of Egypt. Can I just remind you that that we have a more impressive exodus than that? God didn't merely send a prophet to rescue his people from Egypt. He sent his son to bleed that we might be rescued from sin. Where does your anxiety... Where does your anger, where do your alliances, where do your business practices, where does your work ethic, where does your your hard-heartedness toward your fellow man, where do they tell you that your hope is focused? And maybe better yet, what is your anxiety and your anger and your politics and your ethics and your work ethic and your treatment of your fellow man say about God? Like, is the God of the Bible the true God or not? Is he real or not? Is he faithful or not? Is he mighty or not? Is he for you or not? Is he worthy of your obedience and admiration and your love or not? And if not, then go do whatever you want to do. But if he is, trust him. Stop worrying and trust him. Stop making wicked allegiances and trust him. Stop cheating people and trust him. Fix your hope completely on him. Him, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. God says, come. Here's the real hope. That he's not merely a God that says, come. He's a God who came. He came and he made an end to all of your sin. He bled to pay full payment for every lie you've ever told, every allegiance you've ever had, every time you've worried, every time you've been angry, every time you've been dishonest. Why, if he has made an end to all of it, why would you not come to him for forgiveness? Fix your hope. Build your life on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've spoken through the prophets. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and that your Holy Spirit would would take um, would take the word of the prophet and and expose our individual sin. Lord, would you expose the areas, the the, the people, the things that we are fixing our hope in. Would you give us grace to believe what is true about you? To fix our hope completely on you. Do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.